Thank you, friends. Let us pray. God, you are here with us, and we are here with you. Isn't that enough? Lord, let that be enough. It is enough. This we pray in the name of our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, moment of truth. How many of you actually did what Mark asked and met somebody new? Okay, all right, I'm impressed. Bob, who did you meet? Bob Gost, somebody behind you. Hi, okay, how did it go? <laughs> what did you learn about that person? They live next door. Yay, we're so glad that you're here. Bob, you are being a very good sport for letting me put you on the spot. Was it scary? Okay, good. Did you offend each other in any way? No, no, good, okay. And by the looks of it, both of you survived. Yes, awesome, okay. Now, I am only half kidding because it's not every day that you are told in a controlled environment to go out, seek someone that you don't know, and talk to them without any agenda or expectation, right? And yet we do a form of this every single Sunday here at church, here in worship. But that's probably not why you came to church today, is it? My guess is that most of you are here to hear God's word proclaimed or to sing songs of praise, to, to bow your heads in prayer. You didn't come here in order to talk to strangers. If anything, that might be the one thing you were hoping to avoid. <laughs> and yet... If you came here looking for God, searching for something greater than yourself, well then guess what? You just found it. You met God in the eyes of a stranger. You see, unlike most places in the world, most hours of your life, every Sunday in worship, you are put face to face with people who are hopefully not like you people of different educational backgrounds and income brackets, people of different amounts of melanin in their skin, humans from all walks of life, from all over the world, each with their own story to tell, who are gathered together, not because we all look alike or think alike or vote alike, but because we all want to encounter God. And if that isn't evidence of the holy, then I don't know what is. Kind of strange to think that in this day and age, a functional, non-dangerous conversation with a complete stranger qualifies as the work of God. Talk about a low bar, right? <laughs> but let's be honest, in this day and age, kindness and civility and humility are hard to come by. Journalist and author David Brooks summed it up perfectly when he wrote, over the past eight years or so, I've been obsessed with two questions. The first is why have Americans become so sad? And the second is why have Americans become so mean? 
And you don't have to take his word for it. Just read the receipts. Rates of depression, suicide, death by substance abuse are rising. Hate crimes, gun sales, gun violence, and murder rates are rising. All the while, social trust, community engagement, civic engagement, and charitable giving plummeting. All which beg the questions, are we sad because we are mean? Are we mean because we are sad? How did we get into this mess in the first place? Answering his own questions, Brooks concludes the following. We now inhabit a society in which people are no longer trained in how to treat others with kindness and consideration. Our society has become one in which people feel licensed to give their selfishness free reign. He's not wrong. But where he and I diverge ever so slightly is how we fix this problem. For Brooks, comprehensive moral formation or moral education is the answer. And again, he's not wrong. But to me, all the moral education in the world means nothing if we don't actually know who our moral behavior affects. It doesn't matter how many books we read, how many sermons we preach, how many behaviors we learn if we don't really know who our neighbor is, where they are from, what keeps them up at night, what gets them up in the morning. Why are we so sad and so mean? Well, I think it's because we have become a people who only belong to ourselves. As a result, we have forgotten how to be together, how to live together, how to fight well together, how to survive together. We've forgotten how to share with each other, how to worship next to each other, and how to root for each other. We have forgotten what it means to belong to something greater than just ourselves. And what's worse is that we've forgotten how to talk to each other. And I'm not talking about posting anonymous comments or sending snarky emails. I'm talking about asking each other questions and really listening to the answers or answering each other's questions and actually giving something real of ourselves. To belong to each other is to see each other, and to see each other is to talk to each other. So this fall, we are going to do that. We are going to consider the kind of questions we should be asking each other, not the kind of questions we ask in church or in Sunday school, but the kind of questions we ask on the streets or in the supermarket or at the dinner table. We'll even start with an easy one, okay? What is your name. Guiding us on this journey is the Old Testament book of Exodus. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Bible or even this particular book, don't worry. We are going to spend the next three months reading and learning about and wrestling with the contents of this sacred text. For those of you who are very familiar with the Bible or this particular text, Great, don't worry. My guess is that God still has something to reveal to you. For now, what is important to know is that Exodus was written about a people and for a people who were also wondering how they got into the mess that they were in. An exiled people, an oppressed people, a sad and mean, sometimes angry people, 
a people who in their fear and their suffering were tempted to belong only to themselves. As Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann notes, the book of Exodus is to be understood as a literary, pastoral, liturgical, and theological response to an acute crisis. He goes on to say that our job as readers is not to reflect on an ancient history lesson about Egypt or about cult, but to see how this text in new and demanding and dangerous circumstances continues to offer subversive possibilities for our future. And I would add, for our present. So listen up, folks, for God has spoken and is still speaking to us this day from the book of Exodus chapters 1 and 2. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Esher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king rose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase. And in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked aside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child, her child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out 
of the water. Friends, the word of the Lord. Now, if we were to give the summer of 2023 its very own name, what do you think it would be? Now, while your heads are spinning, you're trying to find a possible answer, let me tell you there are only two potentially right answers. (laughs) And those answers are Oppenheimer and Barbie. Now, one is the name of the American physicist memorialized as the father of the atomic bomb. The other is the name of a child's doll who is famous for having it all. One was an actual flesh and blood human being. The other, an anatomically unrealistic mass of plastic. One changed the way wars are fought and arguably nations keep peace. The other changed the way much of society feels about cellulite and flat feet. (laughs) Now, given all of that, it makes perfect sense that the sermon illustration I'm going with today is Barbie. (laughs) I, I mean, Penny's even in Barbie Pig. Okay. So why? Well, obviously because, first, it's the better movie of the two. I mean, is it? Yeah, it's, I'm not wrong. And secondly, because Barbie shows us just how complicated our names really are. Now, quick show of hands, who has seen the Barbie movie? Okay, good. I will not ruin anything for the other half of you who have yet to be enlightened into this new space. Okay, but here is the basic premise as told to me by IMDb. Barbie and Ken are having the time of their lives in the colorful and seemingly perfect world of Barbie land. However, when they get a chance to go to the real world, they soon discover the joys and perils of living among humans. Now, for Barbie, this means coming to terms with the unsettling truth that her name means different things to different people. To all the Barbies in Barbie land, her name is a symbol that women really can have it all. To a middle school girl, she is a villain who set the feminist movement back 50 years. To a middle-aged woman, she is a sweet memory of closer times with her younger daughter. And to her corporate exec, she is a product to be sold. Meanwhile, in Bible land, Do you see what I did there? You saw that, right? Meanwhile, in Bible land, we encounter another iconic name, that of Moses. Like the name Barbie, the name Moses comes to mean different things to different people throughout the book of Exodus. To the Israelites, he is a symbol of freedom from slavery and oppression. To Pharaoh and the Egyptians, he is a villain who wreaked havoc on their land and livestock and people. And to himself, he is an accidental murderer with a speech impediment. And yet none of those things matter in our passage for today. In Moses' origin story, we learn nothing of what he will accomplish or achieve, what he is destined for or capable of, or even what God will do through him. All we learn about is his name and how he got it. To get there, we first have to learn a litany of other names, a generation of names credited for bringing the sons of Israel to Egypt. 
And yet, like most names in history, theirs fade away from memory as a new generation of names emerge. Even big names like Joseph fall to the wayside. After a proud reading of all the names that got us to this point in the story, the scripture writer tells us that a new king has risen who doesn't even know who Joseph is. And then from that point on, the writer stops using names. We don't get the name of the new king or the man from the house of Levi or the Levite woman. We don't know what to call the daughter of Pharaoh or any of her attendants or even the courageous sister or mother of the crying child. Because if this passage were made into a movie, the premise would simply be this, how Moses got his name. A name given to him by the daughter of the ruler who set out to kill him and every other Israel, Israelite boy. A name derived from the fact that he was pulled out of water because his mother put him in the river in a papyrus basket so he might actually live to see another day. A name intricately woven together and crafted from a lineage of ancestors who God chose and covenanted with and called God's very own. You see, before Moses was the one who would lead an entire nation out of captivity, before he challenged the most powerful ruler in the land, before he turned a staff into a snake, parted the Red Sea, saw the glory of God, and lived to tell about it, he was just Moses, the boy drawn out from the water. From the beginning to the end, in triumph or in failure, whether it was life or death, Moses would always just be Moses. Because that was the name that God gave to him. As it turns out, the one thing we think belongs to us, the one thing we spend most of our lives wanting people to honor and remember, the one thing we think exists to distinguish us from others, actually never really belonged to us in the first place. Now, as it turns out, our names precede us, which means our stories precede us. Our identity and our worth precede us. Our belonging precedes us. Love precedes us. Because God precedes us. So maybe the more interesting, the more human, the more holy question we should be asking each other isn't what is your name, but rather who gave you your name? What does it mean? Where does it come from? What is its story? But answering those questions is a totally different ballgame. Answering those questions means letting go of the name game as it is currently played. The notion that names exist to be made bigger, to be said louder, that names exist to be remembered, that our names belong to us and everyone else, we allow us to tell us who we are. If our passage for today teaches us anything, it is that our names exist to remind us that we do not belong to ourselves or even to this world. We belong to God. Even before our lives began, we belong to God. Even now in this kind of sad and mean world, we belong to God. Even when our names fade from memory, we belong to God. The good news of the gospel is that we have always belonged to God.
Now, surprisingly enough, even the Barbie movie understood that point. As it turns out, hiding in plain sight in the midst of perfectly appointed Barbie mansions and expertly choreographed dance scenes lay a very simple origin story, how Barbie got her name. Have you ever wondered how that happened? Did she get her name from some primordial child who first dreamed her into existence? Did she get her name from someone who loved her for representing what could be, or someone who hated her for representing what wasn't? Or did she get her name from someone who thought, that's the kind of name that'll make me a billion dollars? Just like Exodus 1 and 2, her story is more human, more personal than any of those answers. You see, Barbie was the pet name, a toy, toy maker, by the name of Ruth Handler, called her only daughter, Barbara. Fun fact, she also had a son named Ken. <laughs> Wanting to give her growing daughter a doll that wasn't a baby, Ruth Handler created a doll she hoped her daughter could see herself in and named her Barbie. Friends, I actually think God wants the same for us. To bear names that do not demand to be fulfilled or lived up to, but names that were given to us as a reminder that we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to God. To the one greater than us, the one who created us, the one who sustains us, the one who saved us. We belong to God. So your homework this week is to go out into the world and ask someone their name. But more importantly, find out the story behind their name, the people behind their name. Chances are you are going to find God in the process. May it be so. Amen.